Richard the Lionheart's return home to England unfolds like a narrative rivaling Homer's rendition of Odysseus's journey. While skeptics might argue that the Greek hero crafted a fantastical tale just to justify his delayed return, I'd recommend omitting the part where one finds themselves compelled to spend a year with a captivating sorceress to avoid being transformed into a pig, if ever in a similar predicament. Historian James Reston extends his narrative analogy, asserting that Richard was the new Odysseus, but his challenges took the form of revenge-seeking dukes, pining minstrels, a traitorous brother, silly squires, and simpering maidens. Richard's adventures involved disguises as a Templar and a cook, encounters with mountaintop castles, dark dungeons, bloodhounds, feats of incredible strength, and the exchange of significant sums of money. This marks the conclusion of Richard's epic saga, beginning with his voyage home and concluding with a less-than-spectacular demise for the Christian warrior of God. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the English king, Richard the Lionheart. Episode number four, Richard's Odyssey. Richard the Lionheart, despite reclaiming much of the Christian Holy Land and establishing a truce for pilgrimages to Jerusalem to resume, faced considerable obstacles on his journey home. It's easy to be overshadowed by the chivalric and victorious image of Richard, who led charges at crucial moments. However, hidden in his larger-than-life afterglow were historical figures accustomed to being the center of attention in their own stories. Richard's homeward voyage was hindered by three long-standing feuds. In Central Europe, the Holy Roman Emperor suspected Richard of assassinating other Christian leaders to steal God's glory for himself. In France, Philip aimed to consolidate the Angevinian parts of France beneath his rule, rectifying what he saw as a wrong done by Richard's father who had married Eleanor after the French king was done with her. Finally, in England, Richard's brother John convinced the countrymen that Richard was officially dead, making him the rightful king. Each of these men harbored reasons to hate Richard, and none wanted the Lionheart's return to power. Beginning with the Holy Roman Emperor, King Philip shared his version of events upon returning from the Siege of Acre. His narrative, however, diverged from reality. Philip accused Richard of attempting to betray him to the demonic warrior Salah al-Din, murdering Conrad de Montferrat and participating in the poisoning of the Duke of Burgundy. The concluding chapters were even more ludicrous alleging Richard sent Oriental assassins to kill all opposing monarchs. Henry IV, the Holy Roman Emperor, believed these tales, fueled in part by his own anger over Richard siding with King Tancred in Sicily against the Pope, 
and Henry's family's wishes. Henry issued proclamations calling for Richard's immediate arrest if he entered any of the Holy Roman Empire's lands. The most damaging charge to Richard's reputation was the assassination of Conrad de Montferrat, a political rival of King Guy of Jerusalem. Conrad argued against reinstating King Guy, who had lost Jerusalem in part due to his ill-fated decision to march out from behind the city walls for the Battle of Hatton. Conrad's claim rested on his marriage to Guy's deceased wife's sister, who was the lineage claim for the throne. In his view, putting the king who lost Jerusalem back on the throne would be imprudent. King Philip naturally supported Conrad's claim, and Richard threw his backing behind Guy throughout the crusade, maintaining unwavering support throughout. Richard strategically placed Guy in charge of regiments and assigned him tasks to build up his leadership qualities. After the successful retaking of Acre, an agreement was reached between Richard and Guy. Guy would be king with Conrad as his heir, holding the cities of Tyre, Beirut, and Sidon. This arrangement worked as Conrad stayed in the north, establishing himself as the ruler there while Richard and Guy continued their efforts in the south. However, the power-sharing agreement unraveled near the war's end. Despite Richard's efforts, Guy lost credibility, making it challenging for Richard to travel through the northern lands fortified by Conrad's supporters. In April 1192, the barons unanimously elected Conrad as the future ruler of Jerusalem. Though Richard likely considered resisting, he recognized when to yield. He accepted and supported Conrad, assisting Guy in purchasing the island of Cyprus which Richard had taken from Isaac a year earlier and had previously sold to the Templars. Ironically, Guy got the better end of this deal, serving as the Lord of Cyprus for the final two years of his life, while his family would hold on to that title for nearly 300 years. Despite winning the vote, Conrad didn't have the support of everybody. Richard sent his nephew to personally deliver the news, a shrewd political maneuver considering the mending that was needed with Conrad. The news arrived on April 24th, and on April 28th, the assassin struck. This event is where the term assassin actually originates, first heard in Marco Polo's bestseller, The Travels. The term derived from the drug hashish, taken by the killers before their assaults. Legend had it that a guild of assassins operating in Syria were experts in murder, trained in stealth and deceit from childhood. Their willingness to sacrifice their lives with fanatical determination fueled by their drugged state made them feared and famous. In 300 years of operation, these assassins claimed the lives of three caliphs, and one ruler of Jerusalem, the newly crowned Conrad of Montferrat. Salah al-Din, a target himself, narrowly escaped assassination twice. On April 28th, Conrad was ambushed on his way home, attacked by two assassins who stabbed him at least twice, once in the side and once in the back. 
The motive behind the hit and the identity of the orchestrator remain a mystery to this day. Under torture, one of the assassins claimed that Richard had ordered the attack. However, when charged with this accusation, Richard managed to procure an extraordinary letter from the head of the Assassin's Guild, absolving him of all wrongdoing. The rumor of Richard's involvement in this political assassination seems to have been propagated by King Philip and gained traction when it reached the ears of Duke Leopold of Austria, who arrested Richard on his return voyage. it makes little sense for Richard to have switched his support to Conrad, bought off Guy by sending him to Cyprus, and then decided to kill Montferrat. The animosity directed at Richard by other royals, combined with his known dislike for Montferrat and the fact that Richard was aware of Conrad's location, given that his nephew had spoken with him just four days earlier, posed insurmountable obstacles for the Lionheart later then revealing that you know exactly how to contact the head of the Assassin's Guild doesn't do well for your defense. This, however, does not conclude our protagonist's challenges. Unable to march through Central Europe due to his arrest warrant, Richard faced additional obstacles. Naval technology of the time couldn't navigate the Strait of Gibraltar to the Atlantic Ocean, rendering sailing home impossible. Moreover, the Byzantine Empire held a grudge against Richard for placing Isaac Commodus in chains of silver and gold. With limited options, Richard left his army behind and traveled instead with a small force, showing no intent to force his way home. The small force opted for a perilous journey through the Adriatic Sea and then a covert march north to Saxony, currently at war with Germany. From there, Richard hoped to find allies who could help him return to England to finally confront his brother John. His ships landed on the island of Corfu, off the coast of Greece. Engaging in a strategic deception, Richard switched ships, sending most of his soldiers onward while he secretly traveled on a pair of pirate vessels that left Corfu under the cover of night. Richard's evident paranoia suggests that he was aware of the danger he faced. The official royal party ships, devoid of Richard, deliberately made themselves visible to authorities as they sailed past the Italian coastline, playing their role as bait to perfection. The luck of Richard's original ships contrasted sharply with that of the pirates, who found themselves shipwrecked off Lokrum, which is off the coast of modern Croatia. The island, known as the Island of Kings, carried a history marked by misfortune. Legend has it that Benedictine monks, expelled by a French general, cursed the island after their final mass. Holding torches upside down, they allegedly circled the island, invoking a curse that plagued subsequent rulers with bad luck. The Tourism Bureau of the island cites various examples to support the curse, including noblemen associated with the island meeting with tragic ends. One who fell through a window, another who was washed away into the sea, and a third who was killed by his servant. 
after the fall of the Dubrovnik Republic, Captain Tomasik, who owned Lokrum, faced bankruptcy and had to sell the island to Duke Maximilian, the younger brother of the Austrian Emperor. However, Maximilian's fate took a grim turn when he was sent to Mexico, appointed emperor, and ultimately captured and shot by the revolutionary general Juarez. The curse continued with subsequent owners, including a Budapest doctor exposed as a fraudulent academic and a young Hungarian military officer who drowned when his boat sank on the way to Lokrum. But Richard survived his shipwreck and opted to continue on foot, attempting to disguise his party as returning crusaders led by a wealthy merchant named Hugh. However, Richard's choice to assume the role of the merchant raises eyebrows. As one of history's greatest swordsmen, physically fit and possessing the build of a warrior, it seems odd for him to take on the persona of a merchant. Richard, known for his entitlement and lack of understanding of regular soldiers' hardships, once famously attempted to assault a Sicilian for hawking, assuming that hawking was reserved for nobility everywhere. His attempt resulted in a broken sword and spoiled food covering his clothes. This time, Richard's decision to adopt the guise of Hugh, the rich merchant, becomes perplexing, given his fame and recognizability, raising questions about the feasibility of such disguise. At the first city they reached, Hugh, alias Richard, sent an expensive golden rubied ring to request the truce of God for returning crusaders, a customary safe passage granted as a thank you for their service. While crusaders might seek such a truce, a wealthy merchant, regardless of his status, would hardly give away a fortune-worthy ring. The lord of the city astutely deduced Hugh's true identity as Richard the Lionheart, but hesitated to confront the renowned warrior himself. Instead, he returned the ring and granted them safe passage, providing free lodging in his inn. The Lord's plan was to inform Duke Leopold and claim the reward after the Duke's men had captured Richard. Smelling the trap, Richard escaped in the dead of the night, this time donning the disguise of a Templar knight. The city's leader, determined to capture Richard, sent a Norman named Roger to search nearby inns for anyone speaking French. Rather than arresting him, Roger warned Richard of the danger, informing him that soldiers were on the hunt. Richard, along with the 20 individuals protecting him, scattered in every direction to evade pursuit and conceal the passage of their king. Supposedly, the group rode continuously for three days until running out of food. They decided to stay the night in a small inn, where Richard hired a local boy to shop for provisions. Unfortunately, the boy overspent and boasted about shopping for the king. The confirmation of Richard's presence came the next day, when the boy paraded around in Richard's lavishly embroidered jeweled gloves. Authorities, alerted to his location, broke into the inn. In a desperate attempt to disguise himself, Richard raced into the kitchen, transforming into his final character, a cook turning chickens, while attempting to mask his kingly demeanor as that of an invisible peasant for the moment. 
seeing quickly through the act, the magistrate reportedly said, Sire, get up. You've tarried here too long already. Richard, now a captive, found himself at the center of a power struggle between the Pope's authority and that of the Holy Roman Emperors. The Pope defended Richard, excommunicating Duke Leopold for attacking a crusader and accepting 60,000 pieces of Judas silver for the act. King Philip of France was warned that moving against any of Richard's lands while he was a prisoner would lead to similar consequences. However, the Pope didn't act against the Emperor, and Richard was placed under arrest in Germany's Dernstein Castle. According to legend, Richard's childhood friend Blondel discovered him by wandering throughout the countryside, singing the first verse of a song they wrote together as children. Blondel patiently waited to hear the second verse, known only to Richard. There are gigantic holes in this legend. The name Blondel is a generic term for somebody with blonde hair, and this is the first mention of Richard's secret childhood singing mate. Moreover, finding someone through primitive echolocation across the vast German countryside seems a little bit implausible. Additionally, Henry had decided to ransom Richard, and successful ransom usually requires announcing that you have the captive. During his stay in Dernstein, Richard received royal treatment, but was always surrounded by armed guards. Legends surrounding his time in prison are likely as fabricated as Blondel's search. In one legend, Richard invented a game in which he convinced Duke Leopold's son to participate. They would each put a bag over their head and take one good punch at the other. The son, foolishly going first, delivered a powerful blow to Richard. Claiming unfairness due to extreme hunger, Richard asked for a good meal to recover. Allegedly, he not only ate a solid meal, but used the remains of the food as well as the wax by the candles to spend the night hardening his hand to the feel of steel. The next morning, he shattered the jaw of the duke's son, extracting revenge upon his captor. Another fantastical tale spins the story of Richard, the prisoner, seducing Duke Leopold's daughter. As punishment for the affair, the Duke decided to test if the Lionheart could live up to his nickname. The next morning, they released a lion from the Duke's menagerie into Richard's room to see which creature would emerge victorious. Upon hearing of the punishment, the daughter rushed to defend her lover. However, Richard only requested the gift of her perfumed silks to remember her by. The next day, when the door was opened, a bare chest Richard, armed with silk scarves only, faced the lion. He deftly dodged the lion's swift attack, smacking it hard across the face. Seeing the beast's mouth wide open, he leapt forward, thrust his silk-covered arm into its jaws, and with his other hand reached down its throat to tear out the lion's heart. In this absurd legend, while he was covered in lion's blood, Richard calmly prayed, then presented the heart to the duke at the table that had been set up for the spectacle. He apparently squeezed the blood out of it, 
dipped it in salt, and then took a bite out of it. While these stories may be entertaining, the reality was different. Richard was allowed to write letters home, and on March 26, 1193, he wrote to the prior of Canterbury, stating that the emperor had set his ransom at 100,000 marks of silver, equivalent to half of all the money in England's treasury. Richard pleaded for the church's assistance in lending him money and raising the rest. Henry's motivation was clear. A ransom of this magnitude would either be impossible to pay for, or, if paid, would bankrupt England, leaving it vulnerable against its European foes. Richard's elderly mother, Eleanor, worked to free her son, writing to the Pope while simultaneously dealing with the messes created by Richard's brother, John. Eleanor warned the church that the fateful moment is at hand when the tunic of Christ shall be rent again, when the bonds of St. Peter shall be broken, the Catholic unity dissolved. After months of imprisonment, Henry finally brought Richard in front of him to publicly hear the charges against him. Richard answered each charge, providing rational justifications for his actions in Sicily and Cyprus, emphasizing their necessity for establishing a staging ground for the crusade. He vehemently denied complicity in assassinations and called for letters to prove his innocence. During this moment, a connection seemingly sparked between Henry and Richard, and the entire mood of the situation shifted. They quickly became friends, attending court, banquets, and concerts together. Though Richard could not leave yet, the ransom was reduced to 70,000 pieces of silver. In order to raise the ransom, England implemented various measures, including a new 25% tax on all income and movable property, seizing gold and silver plate from churches, taking the entire wool crop from the Caesarian monks, imposing a new tax on anyone with more than a few shillings, and charging a fee for all Jewish individuals visiting England. Notably absurd was the exorbitant fee imposed on a single Jewish migrant, requiring payment of 5,000 marks, while the 25% income tax raised only 7,000 marks due to rampant corruption under John's rule. Richard paid what he could and offered 56 hostages to stand in his place, intending to return personally to raise the remaining ransom. Henry sent a last-minute note to King Philip, warning him to look to yourself, the devil is loose. Philip, in response, struck a deal with Richard's brother, John Lackland, who agreed to hand over sizable portions of the Angevin Empire to Philip in exchange for the French monarch's promise of protection. As Richard's release neared, Philip went on the offensive, invading large portions of Normandy, he even offered Henry 80,000 marks to keep Richard captive for another year. Henry's fondness for Richard, however, seemed to outweigh his love for money, and in February 1194, Richard became a free man after exactly one year, six weeks, and three days of imprisonment. 
His to-do list was extensive. He needed to gather the remaining ransom, reclaim Normandy from Philip, deal with his traitorous brother John, confront the excommunicated Duke Leopold of Austria, and commence the Fourth Crusade. Fortunately for Richard, he was spared the task of dealing with Duke Leopold, who died from complications after a failed attempt to amputate a diseased leg. Upon his return to England, Richard was greeted like a conquering hero. Not necessarily because of his popularity in England, remember, he didn't even speak English, but rather due to the poor leadership of his brother John. Richard spent one night in London to quickly address matters and then headed to Nottingham, John's seat of power. He successfully attacked Nottingham Castle, breaching the outer defenses in one night. Individuals from the keep came out to inspect Richard's scars as proof of his identity, and convinced by the evidence they defected and surrendered the castle. Adhering to the chivalric code, largely written by nobles, Richard pardoned most aristocratic rebels who had followed John after they had provided him hefty ransoms, while foot soldiers merely following the orders of the nobles faced harsh punishment. Two oligarchs received the worst of it, as one was flayed to death, while the other one was sentenced to starve to death in prison, serving as examples to others. After spending less than a month in England, Richard departed, expressing his indifference with the statement, I care not an egg for England. He sailed across the channel for Normandy, and it remains unclear if he ever looked back. However, had he done so, he would have seen a country that benefited from three significant actions during his reign. Firstly, he had established peace with Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. Secondly, he had professionalized England's military and initiated the development of its navy. Thirdly, he revamped and improved the country's taxation system, laying the groundwork for a more powerful central government after his departure. Richard assembled a formidable force to confront John and Philip. Although hiring mercenaries was prohibited by the Pope, Richard believed this order didn't apply when dealing with traitors. His mercenary forces were comprised of crossbowmen returning from the Crusades, criminals, and a substantial group of Caesarian Muslims. Yes, the Crusader King enlisted Muslims to retake his Christian kingdom showcasing Richard's pragmatic approach and first-hand knowledge of their war-fighting capabilities. The conflict between Richard and Philip spanned five years, marked by intermittent hostilities. Philip excelled in the political arena, while Richard remained unmatched in the battlefield. At one point, Philip proposed a tournament where five hand-picked knights would fight to the death for control of both kingdoms. Richard agreed, but only if both he and Philip were among the five combatants, prompting Philip to abandon the proposal. Despite their disagreements, both monarchs shared a strong disdain for John. In a surprising turn of events, Philip had to abandon a siege to deal with John, who had invited over the French senior war command and ambushed them as an I'm sorry gift to Richard. Astonishingly, this strategy worked and John was forgiven for all his actions, 
later becoming the King of England upon Richard's death. That brings us to the infamous Siege of Liege. Liege was just another castle that Richard needed to subdue. His victory was never in question, as Liege was only guarded by 40 knights. However, on the third night, Richard, unable to sleep, went out alone for an evening stroll armed with a crossbow. These solitary scouting missions were apparently a regular occurrence for him when sleep eluded him. On this particular night, there was only one bowman on the wall, but he spotted Richard, a man out alone at night with no armor, carrying a crossbow, and a simple rectangular wooden shield. Richard was shot in the shoulder, and the arrow became deeply lodged. Although Salah al-Din had never met Richard in person, he seemed to believe that he knew the Lionheart better than anyone else except perhaps his mother. Salah al-Din had gone out of his way to warn Richard in letters that his Achilles heel was his penchant for undertaking minor operations that didn't require his presence, but endangered his life. There's a reason ship captains don't lower themselves overboard to inspect the holes of their ships from underwater. Richard consistently thrust himself into dangerous and unpredictable battlefields being the first off the ship both at Cyprus and Jaffa. Heck, legend even suggests that he once ripped out the heart of a lion and ate it without washing it first. Richard the Lionheart, unwilling to display weakness, tried to pull the arrow out himself. Surgeons later admitted that if he had called them immediately, he likely would have survived. His attempt at playing doctor proved as unsuccessful as his endeavors to be a merchant and a cook. Richard's men killed the entire garrison of Liege, except for the man who shot the fateful arrow, Peter Basil. Instead, Richard summoned his killer and asked why Peter had targeted him. The young man revealed that Richard had killed his father and two brothers. Surprisingly, the wounded king granted Peter forgiveness and a sum of 100 shillings. His last words to Peter were, I forgive you my death. Live on. By my bounty behold the light of day. Let the vanquished learn by my example. Septsemia or gangrene set in. And two weeks later, on April 6, 1199, King Richard passed away. The king bequeathed all of his castle's lands and three-quarters of his fortune to John. He divided up his body, sending his heart to Rune, a city whose citizens had always shown him unquestioned loyalty. His body was buried at the feet of his father, Henry II hoping for forgiveness for their last quarrel. His entrails stayed in Porta. Lastly, he willed his vices to the Caesarian monks, his love of luxury to the Menedician friars, and his pride to the Templars. The lion had been slain by a peasant.
Richard the Lionheart's legacy is a complex tapestry woven from historical realities and later mythologies. Born as the third son, Richard faced odds that didn't typically favor the ascent to the throne in medieval England, a realm already marked by the spectacular fame of his family. His father, Henry II, had created the Angevin Empire through astute political maneuvers. His mother had been married to two kings, and mothered two others, and his younger brother John would later rule England and be compelled to sign the Magna Carta. Despite his position in the line of succession, Richard's legacy is marked with remarkable achievements. Renowned for his martial prowess and battlefield leadership, Richard played a pivotal role in the Third Crusade, earning a reputation as a military genius. His victories, including the Battle of Arsuf, added to his legacy. Richard continued defending and expanding the Angevin Empire, contributing to the cultural impact that would later make him a legendary figure in medieval romance literature and ballads. Richard's image is inseparable from the chivalric code, embodying bravery, honor, and prowess in battle. However, his prolonged absences from England, spending only about six months of his reign in the kingdom, led to governance challenges and strained resources, creating an economic burden. His need for funds to support military campaigns, especially the Crusade, resulted in heavy taxation in England, contributing to his unpopularity among his subjects. While Richard achieved significant military successes during the Third Crusade, the primary goal of reclaiming Jerusalem remained elusive, and his absence allowed his brother John to consolidate power in England. Richard's alleged involvement in political assassinations during the Crusade, such as the death of Conrad de Montferrat, has been subject to historical debate and controversy. Richard the Lionheart undeniably stood as the most renowned English figure of his era, with his name and exploits echoing from the British Isles to Jerusalem. His impact extended across a vast array of lands, including Scotland, Ireland, France, Flanders, Spain, Germany, Austria, Italy, Sicily, Cyprus, Byzantium, and throughout the Middle East. Richard's influence was felt not only in the realm of warfare, but also in trade, where he expanded commercial activities and restored the right for Christians to undertake pilgrimages to the Holy Land. While his rule may not have earned him widespread love in England, it's essential to recognize that England was just one part of his extensive empire. Despite spending only a fraction of his reign in England and using it as a financial resource for his ambitious endeavors abroad, the British people were supportive of initiatives like the Sal al-Din Tithe, and his return home was met with a warm welcome. Comparatively, Richard's successor, his brother John, proved to be a significantly greater evil. Richard embodied the archetype of a dashing hero, a characterization that Hollywood has long sought but struggled to portray accurately. His impulsive decisions to rush into battle, while often needless, garnered him respect from both those who served under him and those who opposed him. Salah al-Din, his adversary during the Crusades, treated Richard as a man of honor, and Muslim historians of the time praised his passion for waging war in the name of God. 
In assessing Richard's actions, it's crucial to consider the moral standards of his time, rather than imposing contemporary judgments. The concept of crusades was not regarded as immoral or sinful during the 12th and 13th centuries. On the contrary, it was seen as a sacred duty of rulers. While Richard's decision to execute captives at Acre in 1191 may be viewed as controversial, it can be defended within the context of the circumstances and the standards of the era. The execution was, in the words of Napoleon's chief of police, Fouche, worse than a crime. It was a mistake. It's crucial to note that Richard's historical record lacks evidence of him taking advantage of his position for personal gain. While incidents like the Hawking incident in Sicily showcases a life of privilege, there's little evidence to suggest that Richard engaged in the kind of personal indiscretions that leaders often get a pass for. However, history is rarely viewed with perfect clarity, and understanding Richard's motivations requires careful consideration of both his actions and their outcomes. His decision to execute prisoners during the crusade, while controversial, likely cost him outright victory. Richard, unlike his father, was not rash and did not recklessly charge into problems. His weaknesses, which included his over-trusting nature, as well as his excessive caution, are traits that might be viewed as strengths today. Richard consistently supported his family, even when they showed themselves undeserving. His trust in his family, as seen in the decision to leave John at home, proved to be a mistake driven by naive trust. His failure to invade Jerusalem, the expressed goal of the crusade, remains a significant blemish on an otherwise impressive military record. However, historical what-ifs abound, and questions about what might have happened had Richard attacked Jerusalem are inevitable. Yet this wasn't a question that kept Richard up at night. Richard's acute military mind is evident in his strategic thinking, with McLinn ranking him just below Subadai of the Mongols and Tamberlin, but ahead of all other medieval Western Europeans. Richard's success lay in his focus on supply lines and logistics, avoiding glory-seeking and understanding the impracticality of capturing Jerusalem permanently due to the lack of a large enough Christian population for its occupation. The Third Crusade's objective, conceived purely as an expedition to reclaim Jerusalem for Christianity, was doomed to failure from the outset, because Western nations did not export sufficient populations for its permanent retention. While there are significant what-ifs surrounding Richard, these alternate scenarios could have shaped his legacy differently. The hypotheticals around Conrad's assassination, Frederick Barbosa's fate, Philip's choices, and especially the arrow that killed Richard in the middle of the night, raise compelling questions about what might have transpired if these events had unfolded differently. Had Richard survived that fateful night, the possibilities for his reign are intriguing. Would he have been a good king? Given his track record as a military leader and his ability to command loyalty from those around him, it's plausible that he could have been a competent ruler. 
His popularity, even in absentia, suggests that the British held him in high regard. As for returning to finish the Third Crusade, Richard's dedication to the cause was evident. If he had continued, the outcome of the crusade might have been different. His military prowess and strategic thinking could have influenced the course of history in a different way. Considering his accomplishments, Richard's shining legacy in Hollywood is not entirely unwarranted. While historical figures are complex, and their actions multifaceted, Richard the Lionheart's enduring image as a heroic and chivalric leader is grounded in his real-life achievements and the charisma that made him a legend in his time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you'd like to financially support the show, please look in the description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.